evening, and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. And, uh, Matt, what are you on? You're on mic four, right? Uh, yes. Yes, you are. I am. <laughs> uh, flying by the seat of our pants tonight. Uh, good evening. This is a show where we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. A little bit of a late start tonight because I was over at the Moose Lodge in New Bedford, the Loyal Order of Moose, uh, for House of Bricks. Wishamania wrestling show, a big charity wrestling event for uh, to benefit the Make a Wish Foundation. So we had a huge turnout. Thank you everybody that uh, came out and supported House of Bricks and, and helped raise money for Make a Wish. And uh, John Cena Senior was there, the father of the multi-time WWE champion John Cena. He was there. He is the House of Bricks commissioner, and uh, had some fun with him and and had a couple wrestlers get in my face. But that's all right because there's another House of Bricks show coming up. And I will settle that score. So we'll have information about that coming up for you later on. Uh, but tonight we're going to get right into it with our guest tonight, uh, Kitty Janice. She is the author of the new book, When the Dead Speak, The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation. And uh, we will be discussing not only the things that are in her book, but uh, her career as a paranormal investigator and, and the way that she approaches these investigations as well. And uh, a little bit later on in the show, uh, in the last you know ten minutes or so, we'll be joined by Aaron Kaju, uh, the co-director of the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, because he's going to let us know about his new project that is in the works now that they announced today publicly. Finally, I've known about this for a while, but this is uh, something that they've just announced publicly today. So we'll talk to him about that coming up a little bit later on. And, and for those of you local listeners, you're going to want to stay tuned for that announcement because it is a huge local story that he will be tackling in his next documentary. So we'll get into that as well. But as I said, let's get right into the conversation tonight with our guest, Kitty Janice. And, and Kitty, thank you for, for understanding how things go here. You know, we know, we fly by the seat of our pants, as I said. You do radio. You know what it's like. Of course. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you're an author, a paranormal researcher, and a psychic medium. And, and what I found interesting about the book is the way that you have kind of come in bringing all this together. Uh it, just give everybody a little bit of a background on you and how you started with all of these different aspects of, of what you do. Well, you know, kind of funny. I actually started by actually growing up in a haunted house, and my parents bought this little pink stucco tract house, brand new in 1955, and there was nothing out there except, you know, lemon and orchard groves, for as far as the eye can see, before these little tract houses were built. And the house always had kind of a creepy feel in it, but only in very finite spots within the house, they, like the hallway or my bedroom or the bathroom. Other parts of the house felt fine, and every member of the house felt this. And to the point where we, as young girls, my sister and I, were afraid to come out of the bathroom. Because <laughs> we'd be sitting in there doing our business, and we'd be staring at the store thinking, there's going to be something scary on the other side of the store. And this would be like at 10 o'clock in the morning. This isn't something that happens in the middle of the night, but you could just feel it when you came out of this hallway that something right behind you all the hair would be standing up on the back of your neck and we would just bolt out of the hallway and it slowly started to escalate over the years so we would be hearing the sound of boot steps walking up and down this wood a wooden hallway except the hallway was carpeted <laughs> but you could hear the clomp 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 going up and down this hallway and this went on for years and it would continue to escalate and things would be moving, some poltergeist activity. Uh, this particular ghost loved to move things that were green. Um, he'd hide things that were green for days on end, and we would find them in extremely odd places, uh, like on top of the refrigerator, on top of a door jam, uh, you know, places where you wouldn't accidentally set items down. Uh, we only saw him one time, and it was in the form of an apparition of a, a floating head slowly floating through the dining room. It was the only time that he actually manifested. And that, this probably went on for decades. Uh, throughout the course of the day, middle of the night, we hear these things. So, you know, I kind of grew up in a haunted house, and I figured, well, everybody must have one of these, you know? Everybody must have a ghost in the house. I didn't really think it was that unusual. And not until probably about 25 years ago or so, I actually, uh, you know, started going out and investigating a bit because we grew up having an antiques business my parents had and so we always had a love for things that were old uh, I love the idea of something having a bit of a history to it a story behind it you know holding a piece of antique jewelry you know you think 
you know, who got this as an as an engagement ring? You know, how long, how much love must be imprinted into this ring, and how many years this person wore this piece of jewelry? And you know, most people want a brand new house, a brand new car, and all these new shiny things. And I was, even from a child, drawn to something that had a history and something that had a story behind it. So it kind of carried over to investigating and even just going to historic locations. You know, it's. You know, it doesn't have to be haunted for me. If it's, it's got visual eye appeal, if it's got some history to it, you know, I'm there. I just love, you know, historic locations. And probably the first time I went to a place that I could tell was really super haunted before I started investigating, was, I was probably about nine, I guess. Uh, my parents, we took a trip back east towards where you guys are, because mm-hmm. I'm out, out here in sunny California, and we went to Gettysburg. And I'm sure you guys have been there many times, but you're just driving through this area. It's a palpable feeling of energy just driving through Gettysburg. And that's when I really started to realize there is something that lingers behind when there's a lot of trauma or a lot of death. I mean, you know, something is left, and mm-hmm. I wanted to learn more about what is left behind. So, you know, I just started reading anything I could and just, in going to these, you know, historic locations, you get that kind of feeling. You walk into one room and it feels different. You walk into a different area and it feels okay. And over the course of years, you just start to learn to pick up on these nuances of the differences in the energy. And through that, I started, oh, people record these things. People get EVPs. People actually document what's going on here. And, you know, the more people I got in touch with and the more, you know, I started to learn, it just kind of carried over from there, but it all started pretty much with an antique business and for the love of things that are old and historic, I have to say. And and that's what's great about being involved in the paranormal is if you are a history nerd, it gives you the opportunity, like you know, a lot of us are, it gives you the opportunity to get in some of these places and kind of take down the veil and put you into the actual historical moment but what you bring up is very interesting a lot of people don't take into account how much the energy can impact you the energy that's left behind everybody looks at these historic places and says oh it's going to be great to get in there and have total access but you don't realize just how much is there and how much is imprinted on it and how much that's going to have an effect on you as a person once you go there and visit well exactly and that's one thing i bring in my book is uh Tools are very effective for documenting what you have found, but your body is one of the best instruments to take out there. You have biochemical responses to the energies and the electromagnetic fields that are in these locations. And I like to tell people I like to use, you know, tools and electronic devices as a way of documenting what I'm already picking up. And I don't have to really set it from you know, a psychic point of view. Everybody has a body. Everybody is going to pick up on these biochemical changes in a room. Uh, a good analogy is, you know when you go into like a bar and you can tell there's going to be a fight? <laughs> that kind of static electricity feeling that you feel, you can tell when there's a difference in there just by the changes in your own body. Well, and when you do feel that, and when you do become kind of a receptor for that, we'll we'll get into this in the next hour a little bit, talking about uh, utilizing the equipment and then utilizing yourself, because you do a great job in the book of explaining kind of your journey uh, through that. And I want to take the listener through that as well. But when you are going into these places, I mean, number one thing that you need to be paying attention to isn't, you know, whatever device is in your hand or, or whatever is going on in your laptop or what have you. The number one thing you have to pay attention to is your own senses. And I think people too often try to cut that out of an investigation because they feel like they don't want to make it a subjective experience. But in reality, it kind of is a subjective experience. It kind of has to be. Well, yeah, exactly. And like you said, you're, you're going to be relating to what's in that room around you. And it, like you said, it is a subjective experience because... You're your best instrument. You're going to go in there, and you're going to pick up on those energetic differences, and the tools are just there to debunk and to also validate what's going on in there, be it electromagnet fields or infrasound or, you know, a, a water leak. You know, those are the things to validate what's in there, but you are going to pick up on it first with your own body. 
Is there ever a time, though? Oh, I turned my mic up way too hard. Sorry. Is there ever a time, though, when you have to worry about how much you are trusting your own body? I mean, there, there, there. Obviously, you're in some situations where, you know, sometimes your mind is going to start piecing things together. But uh, is there ever a point where you've never trusted your own body? And and I know that's a loaded question. There's only three minutes to go before the break. But. Um, you know, not to be too delicate to point, but I think females tend to have more issues than the men would, you know, their hormonal imbalances might lead them to be a bit uh, more reactive to a situation. Um, Another reason why I don't necessarily want to know the complete background of who lived there and who died there, because I might go in there with a preconception Hmm. of what I expect to find. I'd rather kind of go in there, you know, from a scientific standpoint, and, you know, if I knew that somebody got shot and died on the stairs... I'm going to hone in right on those stairs. If I walk into the location not knowing that and go up those stairs and all of a sudden, boom, I'm picking up, you know, on the energy on the stairs, to me that's more of a validation. Well, again, uh, coming up in the next hour, we will certainly uh, discuss some more in-depth things with Kitty Kitty Janice. Uh, The book, again, is called The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation, When the Dead Speak. And uh, you can pick it up now online. You can go to her website, kittyjanice.com, and I'll I'll spell that out, K-I-T-T-Y-J-A-N-U-S-Z.com. Or you can just go to intothelightparanormal.com as well, uh, and also on Facebook, and, and you can find Kitty on Twitter. We'll tweet out all those links for you, too, during the news so that you can check it out. And we'll... Discuss a little bit. One of the things that I th- found very interesting in the book, too, was uh, your approach with Reiki. We'll talk about that. I wish Stephanie, our co-host, was here tonight because she's a, a Reiki master and she knows better about this stuff than I do. But you know, we'll talk a little bit about that as well and some of the different approaches that you have and, and the way that you've been able to utilize these in some pretty famous haunts. So we'll get into all of that and more. Again, if you want to tune into the show, uh, if you're traveling around you want to listen to us online, WBSM.com is one way. Uh, the Radio Pup app is another way. Just search for WBSM on the Radio Pup app. But the best way is to watch us on YouTube. We're streaming live on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash user slash spooky south coast. Or just go to YouTube and type in spooky south coast. You'll find it. Click right on the video there, and you will see the stream there, and you'll see the chat. I want to say hi to everybody in the chat. Sorry for not getting the word out too sooner. Uh, about the fact that it was running behind, but uh, when you know when people are running around you with steel chairs and getting ready to hit other people over the head, you know that's not the time to be looking down at your phone and sending out a tweet because <laughs> you never know you might get a chair shot to the head yourself. So, uh, but again, we raised a lot of money for the Make a Wish Foundation, and and that's what it was all about was raising some money for some kids. So uh, we will be back in just a few moments after the news. Uh, again, if you want to check out Kitty's website, intothelightparanormal.com or kittyjanice.com, we'll tweet out the links during the news break, and we will have some updates for you in the next hour as well about Aaron Kadju's new documentary that he's working on that is very important for South Coast folks, and it's going to be a major documentary. I'm telling you guys, this is going to be big. So pay attention, listen up. There may be a way for you to help contribute with some information as well. We'll find out what Aaron is still looking for and what him, he and his team need uh, in the production of this documentary. We'll get into all that a little bit later on, but more with Kitty Janice coming up after the news on New Bedford's News Station 1420 WBSM. It's Spooky South Coast. I guess we didn't really have a first hour. We had the first 15 minutes, thanks, Tim. But uh, we are <laughs> with you until midnight. Anyway, and uh, we are joined by our guest, Kitty Janice, and you can check out her websites. We tweeted them out on Twitter, and if you are not following us on Twitter, you can do so at SpookySC and tweet during the show using the hashtag SpookyLive. That's how we can find it. And also, the great thing about this YouTube streaming that we're doing, aside from excellent quality video and audio, which... Everybody in the chat room is saying it's fantastic tonight. Uh, not only do you get that, but you get the chat room feature on the stream as well. So you can actually 
watch the show, and we have the multiple cameras up there all at once for you to check out. And, uh, and of course, it's a great way to interact with us during the show. Another great way, you can also text us at 67664 if you'd like to do that. And you can just start your text with WBSM.com. I'm sorry. Just start your text with the letters WBSM so we get it in on our software uh, here in the station. So those are some different ways. And, of course, you can call in 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And we're talking again with Kitty Janice. She is the author of the new book, When the Dead Speak, The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation. And we already we have a question from the chat room, Kitty, that I'll ask you. Uh, and this question is something that I think a lot of our new listeners might come across uh, and, and a lot of first-time investigators. What are some of the common mistakes that every beginning paranormal investigator makes when they start out? Uh, number one, make sure you always have permission to go into a location. Uh, I, I, thought you were just supposed to, I thought you were supposed to just walk in, right? Uh, no, uh, no, that never bodes well. No, you always want to make sure that you have permission to go to a location. Um, safety first. Always carry, you know, a flashlight with you. And I have been known to do several of my investigations in daylight hours. Uh, you know, spirits don't know what time is night and what time is day. If it's, if it's a quiet time, you're going to get excellent paranormal activity. Uh, always go, you know, with respect to the spirits. I mean, these people were somebody's children, somebody's parents, and they died somewhat often tragically, and there is emotional stress attached to that. So treat them as you would want someone to treat your mother, is what I always say. Well, one of the, you know, in discussing dealing with the spirits, one of the things I found interesting, uh, and it's at the very beginning of the book, you kind of give a hierarchy of the spirit world of what it is that we could be dealing with and encountering on an investigation. And I think that, you know, each one of these different types of, of entities requires its own uh, certain tact and, and certain procedure for dealing with it. But, I mean, if you could, just give us kind of a quick rundown of what you think uh, people are encountering when they're out there in the field. Uh, one thing, this is also really good when you're dealing with energy work, because this is pretty much what paranormal investigations is. You're doing energy work. Once we leave a physical body or those entities which never possess the physical body, um, you're dealing with a type of energy. So we're going to start at the very top and go down. The very, very top is going to be creation, God, divinity, the very top echelon. And I don't think he's spending or she is spending too much time interacting with paranormal investigators. No. Underneath that, you're going to get into uh, true angels, uh, which could also uh, interact somewhat with you. A lot of times they don't. It's a very, very high vibration. Uh, underneath that, which is somewhat kind of surprises uh, people, I put animal spirits, usually. Animal spirits, I think, are way up there. Uh, if you look at your family pet and that unconditional love that they are giving you, they rank very, very high up on the rung for me. <laughs> um, you know, they, I cannot say enough about animal spirits because they are just that unconditional love and that purity of essence is one reason I, I put them way up there. Yeah, I mean, it um, makes sense to me. You know, next now would be, uh, you know, an actual uh, spirit. This is someone who actually existed in a physical body on a physical plane. And they can actually be spirit guides. A lot of times they can go up one to like an ascended master, which we would talk about like in uh, Buddha, Gandhi, uh, someone who has like attained enlightenment a bit. That is one, like a little extra half rung. Uh, spirit guides were physical beings, and now they are just in pure consciousness form, uh, which is why when we talk about, you know, psychic mediums or people, they they have to like raise their vibration and they'll talk about that to reach a conversational level with these people um, then we go down to the human form which is us on earth um, we know all about that we don't need to talk about them too much uh, when you get slightly below that um, you get into what's called elementals which can cause a lot of problems elementals are something that never existed in a physical form that's a broad umbrella of a lot of earth-based energies we can talk fairies we can talk uh, uh gremlins we can talk uh you know kind of problematic uh, they tend to get very 
entitled to a space. Um, they can really kind of screw around with you. They're very leachy in their need of energy. Um, and, and how can you tell one from the other then if they're, you know, if they never had a form, how do you know exactly what you're dealing with, uh, you know, the, in the different classifications of, of an elemental? Basically by your gut feeling. Uh, it doesn't really matter if you know for sure if they existed in a physical form, how you feel when you're in the presence of that energy lets you know what their intention is, which I think is far more important than whether or not they, quote, existed in a physical body. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there were a lot of humans who went into spirit form who were very nasty people, who still give you a really bad gut feeling. So you would react to them as you would almost on an elemental level. There are some elementals that are just kind of existing and moving throughout the space uh, that don't always really want to interact with you. They're just kind of leering and ogling in their energy, for, for lack of better terms. They're, they just give you that creepy vibe. So once again, always go back to your intuition. My book talks a lot about intuition and your gut feelings. How do you feel in the presence of that energy? It will give you an exact answer of how to react to that energy. And then I, I do want to circle back to that uh, with, with a point afterwards, but uh, the, you also mentioned then the lowest form of entity that we could be dealing with too yeah that the very very lowest is a true demonic energy um i do not engage with demonic energy i will quote acknowledge its presence but it doesn't need my help it doesn't want really anything from me metaphysically or spiritually Uh, i don't want anything from it so i can go into locations that quote have a very dark energy and by raising my own vibration, by just going in there with the intention that I really don't want to have to deal with you. A lot of times I don't get bothered by those energies. They are looking for something much more vulnerable. If you go into a location and you are not vulnerable to that type of energy, you don't have to really worry about it. I don't seek it out, and so it doesn't come to me too much. And, and we should also stress, though, that just because it's the lowest form of entity on your classification here, that doesn't mean that it's the lowest, you know, terms of activity in terms of the strength. I mean, we're not in any way saying that these things aren't dangerous and that, and that people should be out chasing after them. No, it is the lowest in its vibrational form. Um, it is a rather rare energy to find a true, quote, demonic energy, but I advise everybody to not physically, you know, actively seek these out because you're not going to get anything really good from that association. It's going to take from you. It's not going to give anything to you. Well, going back to the point that you just made a few moments ago and talking kind of about the self and about how you encounter these energies and how you process them on your own, you know, I spend a lot of time around here in in New England where we are, you know, dealing with uh, a variety of different approaches from different groups because you have a lot of people who are, you know, attached to TAPS and, and attached to the very scientific or, or pseudoscientific, however you want to look at it, way of and thinking. You guys got a lot more old stuff out there. We too. do. I, you know, I was reading in <laughs> the... Like really old out there. I was reading in the beginning of the book when you talk about how you grew up in a town that was very old. Uh, it's over 100 years old. I was like, what? <laughs> Around here we have fences that are over 100 years old. I know, I know, it's sad. Everything, there's like very few abandoned buildings out here. You know, and real estate is such prime. I mean, one of our best, most active, paranormally active locations, Linda Vista Hospital, mm-hmm. was torn, well, not, it was, a lot of it was torn down and it was renovated and converted into senior housing. So that, I mean, it, yeah, you just it doesn't sit abandoned but, for very long. But we do have a lot of that. A lot of that does happen here too, because uh, you know the problem is is the the sad thing is is the historic sites are here, but there's just not enough interest in keeping them going. If there's no buddy coming together, no historical society or organization coming together to save them, you know they just let these buildings get torn down or they let them fall into disrepair because there's just no money to be made in 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 keeping them going. So it's the it's the same type of thing. The only difference here is you know we've already have we have these structures and we just don't save them you know over there you, you know you guys just have the 
trouble of not having enough of it. But we have them and we take them for granted, which I think is disgusting. But that's a that's another topic for another time. <laughs> but getting back into that, as I was saying, you know, we deal with a lot of these different groups that have different approaches. But I'm starting to see more people looking at things the way I try to look at them in the same way that you do, where, you know, we, we can't just be all scientific in this because it's not all of a scientific process. For us as human beings, you know, we have to look at this subjectively because we need to be there to experience this for this stuff to happen. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, it seems like you were going out on a lot of investigations with some of the, you know, the, you talk about some of the public investigations that you've gone on too, but when you're, see, you're seeing a lot of these different approaches too, how did you decide that, you know, going with it the way that you have was the right path for you, or, or did it just come together naturally for you? I'd have to say it probably just came together naturally because I kept getting these, you know, these gut feelings, and I found when I correlated what I was feeling with doing, say, you know, an EVP session, that's when I started getting more results. If I was sitting in a room and I'm thinking, gee, I'm feeling that there's an old woman here, and I started directing my line of questioning towards someone who would be an old woman in the room, I started getting better results. Uh, you know, a lot of teams, they completely blanket a location with, you know, cameras and infrared and do something, you know, completely in the dark and go at it for hours and hours and hours, I tend to do what a lot of people would be considered rather short investigations because I found I'll go into a place, I'll pick up on the active locations, I get my evidence, and there's like this little crescendo of activity, this massive flurry that lasts for about 20, 30 minutes, and then everything goes quiet for the rest of the night. And that happens time and time again when I go on these investigations. So I found that we're going to get this engagement we're going to have this little flurry of activity, and then they're done for the night. So I, my investigations tend to last about, you know, six hours or so. I don't stay in a location all night long because I found once they're done talking to me, they're pretty much done. Right. I, <laughs> and, I, you know, my idea is I, I tend to have better luck when I do um, work on, focus on audio. Um, I tend to get really good EVPs. I tend to be able to pluck them out to the conversations uh, really well when I'm reviewing my evidence. And to be totally honest, I don't think I really just have the patience to do a lot of visual you know, review hours and hours and hours. I would just go completely blind. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, maybe I guess from a laziness standpoint, I've learned to do short investigations. I ask them for what I need. I get the feedback on them. I get my audio and you know, okay, folks, I'll see you next time kind of thing. And each time I go in, they're like, oh, she's here. You know, we're going to talk for, you know, 20 minutes to half an hour or so, and then we're going to be done. So they kind of pick up on that, too. I'm here. Let's talk. Okay, I'm gone kind of thing. Well, and this question just popped into my head, and I, I can't believe I never thought to ask this before, or maybe I haven't. I just haven't remembered other people's answers. But, you know, and, and again, you know, my co-host, Stephanie Burke, who's usually here, she's under the weather today, but, you know, she, too, is a psychic medium. And so I probably could have had this discussion with her and just completely forgot that I did. But you talk about, you know, being a psychic medium and having those abilities, but also you're out there capturing EVP as well. Do, how much of a synchronicity is there between what you're capturing on these recordings and what you may be hearing at the same time, uh, you know, through your abilities? Is there ever any kind of syncopation between the two? Not always, no. A lot of times I am not feeling anything. <laughs> I, I hate to say it. And I'll get excellent EVPs. I'll just, you know, do my little burst sessions in there, and I'll, I'll get fabulous EVPs. Other times... I'm just really feeling the room. I've been in locations uh, where I can touch the wall and feel just like hideous giggling through a wall. I can you know, see the elementals crawling along the floor and absolutely no EVPs. There actually almost tends to be, I'll get one or the other. If I'm getting a lot of visual and energetic influence coming at me, that tends to be what I'm picking up. Uh, if I'm not picking it up, that's when I'll do an EVP session, and I'll get amazing results. They tend to give me one or the other. Do you think that that's maybe because the spirits have to choose one way or another in order to uh, reach out? I mean, do you feel like it's either, hey, I can go make that device light up, or I can send you a mental image? Do you feel like uh, they don't have the ability to, to kind of walk and talk and chew gum at the same time? I think that's a good point. I think they may 
focus their energy as well as I'm focusing on what I'm picking up. But I, I, I have to agree with you. I think they may be good at doing one thing. They maybe have learned how to focus their energy towards picking up on the white noise of a digital recorder, or maybe they haven't figured out how to do that yet. But I can make the lights flicker. So they, they hone in on what they've, they're good at. Because, like I said, I'll usually get one or the other. I'll either get really good EVPs and just be sitting very calmly in the room, or I'm just getting bombarded energetically, and we'll get limited audio responses. One of the uh, things that you talk about is uh, working with Ascended Masters. You, you discussed that, you mentioned that briefly, uh, and also you talk about it in the book. But uh, a question from the chat room, Ascended Masters brings up the idea of reincarnation and past lives. What are your thoughts on, on that? I come from a very non-Christian background. I tend to follow more of a Native American path. Um, my... Spirit guide, my ascended master is White Buffalo Woman, and everybody has their own journey. I'm not going to say one path is right, one path is wrong. It's you know your own belief set and what resonates well with you. Um, I tend to resonate with things that are attached to the earth. I'm a very earthbound person, and so I don't follow a really strict Christian modality in that respect, but. For other people, and I work with angels in a non-religious context, which I know sounds really weird, <laughs> but it, it happens. You know, it just, it just does. You know, they're just there, and I just relate to them as a higher vibrational being, not something that actually was sent down no. by you know Jesus Christ from the cross. It, it, to me, they're a very high vibrational being. And so, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I mean, sometimes it's. You know, our human constructs of what these beings are is really just kind of our way of putting together a story to explain what it is that we might have encountered over time and what we're dealing with. So, you know, us classifying and coming up with all these stories to describe these angelic beings is no different than when we go on an investigation and we're trying to piece together the, the different types of contact that we've had. So, you know, I, I don't see anything wrong with you interacting with them on that way and just treating them for the higher beings that they are. Yeah, I just say, I need help, come in here and help me, and, you know, and they're there. They said there's no right way and no wrong way. If it works for you, if it resonates well with you, then I say go for it. And what works for me is working with more of a Native American-type energy. I've worked with shamans. You know, I've I've worked on a very spiritual path towards that, and resonating with a very earthbound energy and going back to, you know, the Mother Earth is is what works for me. One of the... uh Things well, actually, uh, there's a couple things. You know, just like I'm sure you're jealous of some of the places that we get to investigate uh, over here on the East Coast, uh, you've had the opportunity to be on the Queen Mary a number of times, and uh, and that must be a pretty special place to be able to go and and because not only is it, are you going there and uh, looking for paranormal stuff, but you've been there for other things too, and kind of had paranormal things happen in passing. I hate, you know, I hate to make you pull your little jealous strings, but the Queen Mary is probably a 30-minute drive from my house. Oh, oh man. Well, and if I just like don't feel like going to the gym or something on my day off, I think I'll just go to the Queen Mary today. We're, we're 20 minutes from Lizzie Borden, so there. Oh, whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, that just must be a fascinating place. And it gives you the opportunity to kind of have a continuous, ongoing case study. Well, yeah. It's, it's a historic location, and the more you go back there, I tell people... Uh, it's more welcoming each time I go. I know always get paranormal activity each time I go there, but I feel like I belong there more and more each time I go. And that rings true to all the investigators that I talk to. We have probably at least eight or ten paranormal groups that specifically go just to the Queen Mary for those reasons because it's a massive ship. And you can go there a hundred times and have a hundred different experiences. And I've been able to capture my best EVPs on the Queen Mary, and those were in daylight investigations. I've seen full-body apparitions on that on that ship. Uh, do I have time to tell you the little story of my full-body apparition story? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Okay. Uh, my friend, uh, Patty and I, we'd spent the night on the ship doing an investigation, and we were up in the morning, and the Queen Mary is longer than the... Uh, 
oh, uh, Empire, Empire State Building. Okay. To a blanket from it. It's, it's, and there's one hallway that goes the entire length of the ship. Very, very long hallway uh, where the hotel, where the state rooms are. And so it's about 10 in the morning. And we're up and we're walking down this long hallway. And the Queen Mary has beautiful uh, veneered walls. Gorgeous ship. And from this long hallway, there's little teeny tiny antique halls that shoot off every, you know, 15 feet or so that go off to the little state rooms. As we're walking down the hall by ourselves, all of a sudden, out of the corner, comes this woman. She's about 40 years old, and she's dressed in complete period attire, complete with the little white gloves. It's a total 1940s look, you know, the little, the little knit business suit, the little white pumps, the little hat. And, you know, when you're walking with someone, if a stranger comes kind of behind you, they tend to give you a bit of personal space just because they're, like, not with your group. She started walking right next to us, which I thought was a little odd. And I said, okay, whatever. And I, I didn't think it was odd that she was wearing period clothing because I figured, okay, they just started hiring people to work in character, to wear period costumes. And they have a big, uh, like, 1920s ball every year. So they have a lot of programs where people dress in period attire. So I wasn't thinking that was weird. It started getting weird when she started talking to us. And she's walking right alongside of us, and she takes this gloved hand, and as she's walking along with us, she's running this gloved hand along the walls of this veneered hallway. And I think that's kind of odd. <laughs> and we're just saying, hi, how are you? She's like, oh, I'm just wonderful. She, you know, I just love this ship. I just stay here. Okay. <laughs> you know, and we're just like friend Patty and I are kind of looking at each other, and I'm getting goosebumps as I'm telling this story, because she was absolutely solid, and she's just walking along right next to us, and before I could notice, she turned one of those little anti-corners, those little hallways that goes off to the staterooms, and she's, you know, she's gone, and I, I walked about 10 feet, and I just stopped, and I look at my friend Patty, and I'm like, was she, was she real? <laughs> I don't know, and I, so I turned, and I went down that little hallway, and she would not have had enough time to get into the stateroom. And if she was opening it, I would have heard the door opening because they're, they're really loud, old vintage doors. There was nothing there. Wow. There was nobody standing in the hallway. And I mean, I've been talking to her. And I look at Patty, and Patty looks at me, and we're like, okay, that was weird. <laughs> you know? And that's what happens a lot on the Queen Mary. There's a lot of full-body apparitions on there because it, it had a long and storied history, you know, as a passenger ship, and then it's, it's time during wartime, and then it went back being a passenger ship. And a lot of the spirits, I've met very few troubled spirits on the Queen Mary. It's a lot like, I have to say, like the Stanley Hotel. The spirits that are there like being there. And so it's a wonderful place to kind of keep going back and having these, you know, recurring conversations with these spirits, especially, in the, you know, one of the spirits in the pool room, the famous one, Jackie, the, the quote, little girl spirit that's in the pool room. Oh, what are you the, can pretty much talk to on a daily basis there. Yeah, see, that's that's what I would find them to be the most interesting is you know, you know, at least, you know, from what the entity's telling you, you know who the ghost is that you're communicating with on a frequent basis, instead of just going there and kind of guessing and figuring it out, you know, you have a little bit more of a definitive path to follow, and that can kind of help advance the questions a little bit more. Uh, one of the other places that you investigated that um, I remember actually getting the invite to go out there and just not being able to afford the trip, but uh, but David Oman's house uh, is a pretty intense place, and it seems like you've had some pretty intense experiences there. It's a pretty intense place. Uh, David Oman refers to his house as the um, Disneyland for the dead. Uh, his house, if your listeners aren't aware of, his house is in Benedict Canyon, which is just a little bit north of Beverly Hills. And his specific house, and he's going to kill me if I get any of this wrong, <laughs> his house is built about 100 yards or so from the site of where the Sharon Tate J.C. bring Abigail uh, Folger uh murders were by the Manson family in 1969. That house is no longer there. That house was torn down, and a movie director or someone built a house on that lot. But Dave Oman's house is built about 100 yards or so on the same street, and his house is crazy active. Now, what I 
I have to theorize what makes this house active is Benedict Canyon alone is just ripe with paranormal activity. Uh, it was the site of a huge Native American battle between the Tonga Indians and the U.S. Cavalry, and a lot of people died in this canyon. It's also known for a lot of old Hollywood tragic history. Uh, Rudolph Valentino's uh, house is like across. I mean, I could probably throw a rock and hit it. Um, the original uh, Superman, who, quote, died, you know, by suicide, which was very skeptical, you know, his house is in that area. So there's a lot of old Hollywood history within this canyon. Uh, there are a lot of weird anomalies to the land itself. There's a geo, there's a magnetic anomalies in there. There are, like, magma deposits, like, about a mile down that cause a lot of havoc if you're trying to build anything there. I mean, Dave Bowman says the contractors had a heck of a time building the house because none of their tools would work, their you know, their compasses were going haywire. So they had to build a lot of steel beams to go into this house. So between the steel beams going into this house that's full of geomagnetic energy, about a 30-foot metal spiral staircase going through this four-story house, it's basically an antenna that draws energy into this house. So there's a ton of uh, Native American energy in this house. There's uh, the spirits of what he believes is Sharon Tate in this house. And he has a good relationship with these spirits. And if you go in there with the wrong attitude, if you are disrespectful either to Dave Ullman or to the spirits, uh, you're going to get messed with. And that's been shown to show up on a few television programs or two, if you're not respectful of it going into that house. Um, one of the things I've always wondered about that house is just the way that it's constructed, the way it kind of, you know, it's stacked one floor over the other kind of uh, at the edge of the canyon. I wonder if that is kind of has anything to do with the activity that happens there and any kind of uh, almost like a like an antenna almost drawing in some of that stuff. Well, yeah, uh, you have that steel going right into the ground, and then you have the spiral staircase inside the house going up. Yeah, it, it does create just an enormous antenna and the first time I went into that house it really gives you like a fun house effect it, it, it's almost spinning the energy in that house until you kind of get acclimated to it and um, there are some investigators who refuse to go back and uh, you know I, I love Dave Owen I'm very respectful of him and he's very careful about who he lets into his house because it's a private house it's his home it's where he lives but he also is very careful about people who might have physical conditions. Um, there's such a strong, and this goes back to working with energy, if you're going to places with strong geomagnetic anomalies, um, he believes that it actually affects people who may have cancer, and he doesn't like anybody to go into the house who is battling cancer who, or who has battled cancer in the past, because he feels that it, being in the presence of all that electromagnetic energy will aggravate it. So he, he's very cautious about who he lets into the house. Well, and it, yeah, it is built right into the hillside. In fact, there's one room that he calls the dirt room, uh, where you go and you open this door off of his game room, and there's a big pile of dirt, the, the you know, right into the hillside. And that has a really strong. To me, that's my favorite room in the house because it has the most protective energy of any of the rooms in this house. It has the strongest Native American energy in there. And I always bring an offering when I go in there, be it uh, lavender or uh, fresh tobacco or sage, and I offer it. And the first time you go into that room, if, if you're willing to accept it, the spirit that will be in there will actually kind of wrap himself around you like a robe. And to me, it's he's gauging your intention, and he's somewhat welcoming you. Now, if you go in there and you aren't kind of expecting that, and you feel something wrapping you, yeah, you might run out of a house scares. Um, so that's where it kind of comes into play is being aware of how you feel in the presence of that energy. If you feel comforted by something wrapping around you, then it's a welcoming comfort. If you feel very uncomfortable if something's wrapping itself around you and you think it's going to do something, then react to it that way. But um, 
Yeah, it's it's a freaky place. <laughs> and, and it's definitely, it's on my list. I mean, I, I, I've i been out that way one time. I was out there for just a couple of days, and I didn't really have time to go anywhere except for a haunted bar. So one of these days, I want to make a trip out there and see all the sites. Uh, but one, one of the, we have about 12 minutes left in the discussion, but one of the things that you talk about is utilizing science and we're talking a lot about utilizing your own abilities and your own intuition but you also talk about bringing in some of the scientific approaches to this and i I think that it's one of those points where we're always going to have some debate on this about how much of this is actually can be considered a hardcore science because a lot of it has to go into the theoretical with things like metaphysics and and also quantum theory and all of that um do you feel like there'll be a point when this will be scientifically accepted and, and proven I would like to hope so, and I think our main problem is is because we can't approach the issue from a real scientific standpoint. A real scientific standpoint is something that you can replicate under laboratory conditions. Going on and doing an investigation and getting photographic evidence and getting EVPs, that is collecting evidence or collecting, you know, the effect. What we cannot do figure out yet is what the cause is and so I I call myself a field researcher because it's hard to call yourself a true actual science because we can't really approach it from a real scientific standpoint and for people to say oh well it's not really I don't see ghosts ghosts are stupid it's energy work and from the quantum physics standpoint um, a lot of what we think is paranormal is how we deal with time you know, a person lived, a person died. You look in front of you, you look behind you. He's alive, he's dead. That is a very binary vision. If you look at it from an energetic standpoint and what happens when we leave the physical body and become pure consciousness, look at it as more of a sphere with pinpoints of energy coming in from all directions. And you begin to realize that there are so many other possibilities out there. But what we have to do is figure out what is causing us to be able to reach these other little strings of consciousness and vibration. That's what we have to figure out. It's interesting. I mentioned that to somebody once before, and uh, and I got kind of a, a, a dumbfounded look. But I said, you know, what 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 what's one of the words that we use to describe you know what exists for us beyond this? Uh, one of the words that we use to describe it is a feeling of being sublime. You know, to to feel that feeling of of what we call sublime and the actual process of going from a solid to a gas is called sublimation and maybe that's because that's what we're doing with our bodies we're going from a solid to an energetic being that doesn't have that physical shell anymore and so maybe that's the sublimation of our soul but you know people are just so locked into the idea of you know this uh, just look at nature i mean if you look at nature and see the the metamorphosis that happen with things like a butterfly or a cicada where a cicada will come out the 17 year cycle cicadas will come out in these gross disgusting looking shells and they'll just crack right out of them and turn into these you know equally ugly but still pretty I cool i like cicadas i i do too but i mean they're, it's they not, don't get them out here though but i like them it's not like there's something that you want to stare at for a long time you look at it and you're kind of like ew <laughs> No, that's interesting. <laughs> but, I mean, it could be the same thing with us. I mean, maybe we're just shedding this shell and turning into a, a, a cicada. I I like that analogy. It, it, it's the transition that I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable. You know, they really aren't afraid of being dead in the journey and learning. It's that transition that's going to be really awkward. Yeah, yeah. As I'm a little bit worried about that because I'm somebody who is like very uh, spiritually stunted. I think so. Uh, I'll, I'll have a lot to learn as I. Go. But you're curious, and that's half the battle right there. You want to learn. You're, and that makes you fearless. If you have that curiosity, then there is no fear. Well, here is a question uh, that popped up on our Twitter feed uh, that I think uh, uh, probably Chris Balzano put out as a poll. Can an investigator or a psychic leave an imprint on the next person looking into a site? And, and Michelle Belanger has already replied that she feels yes, and learning to recognize them as such is a very tricky process. What do you think about that, Kitty? Do we leave an imprint that leaves behind on the site and kind of, you know, it might help and it might also hurt the next person that comes along looking to investigate? I definitely think so, and I've actually been in areas where if someone comes in 
with the wrong attitude, so to speak, that it can clear a room like nothing. There will be absolutely no, the, the, the spirits will just leave because they can pick up on that. And I've been in there as well. So-and-so was in here, and they were playing with the Ouija board, and they were doing this. And it will definitely have a change in the atmosphere when you go in there. How long that imprint or how long that effect lasts, it depends on the person and what they were doing in there. You know, it begs the question, people who go into locations and perform, say, uh, you know, satanic rituals. Oh, heck, goodness, yes. It's going to leave a definite imprint on a place. Also, when you go, um, I think when you go into cemeteries, people think, oh, cemeteries are cool, they're creepy, they're scary. I think cemeteries are some of the most romantic, peaceful places because they come from a place of love. Yes, there is bits of sadness, but how many more times does that person return to the place and put roses on the, on the, on the grave and speak to that person when it's their birthday and, you know, take them a wreath at Christmas time? There's so much more love and sentiment in a cemetery, I think, than anything else. And I, I truly believe that that, you know, resonates quite a bit. So, yeah, I have to totally agree with her. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, if we are leaving uh, an imprint, uh, an energetic imprint, that's fine. Uh, you know, and I think that if we are leaving kind of behind a little piece of our, our self and our consciousness, that's fine. Uh, but please, you know, clean up after yourself. Don't leave behind your water bottles and your dead batteries and all that stuff. Don't leave that for the next person to have to deal with. Oh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> take, take, you know, photographs. Yeah, I see people who leave, you know, candy wrappers and the batteries. And, you know, it's another reason I like to do some investigations by the light of day because I'm old. I've had both knees replaced at the same time. I am clumsy. I trip. And plus, a lot of these places, they're historic locations. The last thing I want to do is trip over a table and knock some overpriceless antique. <laughs> so, yeah, I will leave some lights on, definitely. And I make sure I, you, know, you take all your cords, your equipment. Don't leave any cameras behind, obviously, and, you know, the wrappers, the batteries. Because we want to be respectful of the place because we want to be able to come back. Uh, you were talking about all the old locations that you have, you know, on your end of the coast. If we, as paranormal investigators, show the respect for these historic locations, we can play a part in preserving them. And part of that is being, you know, respectful and cleaning up after yourself and, you know, don't vandalize and make sure you always have permission to go into a location, for sure. And I think, too, that uh, as... as the paranormal becomes more popular. I think you're going to see people, and, and we've already seen how much it's grown over the last decade or so, but I think you're going to see people starting to take advantage of, you know, utilizing insurance more, which will help a lot of these historic places, too, deciding to open up. I, I tell everybody out there, like, if you're trying to get into a place and they keep shutting you down, tell them, say, we'll go out and carry a $2 million insurance policy. You can get it for 150 bucks from a website. And and maybe that's enough to convince them to let you in there because you are dealing with stuff that is valuable that once it's gone, we'll never be able to get it back again. So it's a good way to try to maybe convince them into letting you in and also tell them, hey, if it turns out that it's haunted, that's a whole new avenue for you for tourism. And it, and it helps them make money at a time when people just aren't spending money going to historic places. I do carry my own liability insurance and where some places might want to shut you down because they don't want that connotation of being a haunted other places might open up because it's very limited what they need to do. All they I, we're basically photographers. They don't need to, you know, have a large staff on hand. They don't need a lot of security on hand. We're we're very easy keepers. You just let us in. We spend a little time there, and off we go. So it, it's very easy money for them. But I I do carry my own liability insurance when I go to uh, locations, and yes, I do definitely recommend people. And yeah, tell them up front. I've got my own insurance. We'll, you know, sign all the liability papers you want, and that's a good feeling for them to have. They feel very secure in that, I believe. And if that doesn't convince them, tell them that you'll order pizza for everybody. That also helps because you're going to order pizza anyway, so you might as well just include some for their staff. Well, the the book is called When the Dead Speak, The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation. Uh, the author and our guest is Kitty Janice. You can get it online. Uh, you can get it right from your website, right, Kitty? KittyJanice.com? Yes, and it's also available on Amazon. So it's so easy to get. And uh, is it just the physical print? Is there, a, is there a digital version, too? Right now, it's just in the physical print. It's not available in Kindle yet, but you can get it through my website. You can get it through Amazon. 
and it did just win the 2016 First Place Award in its category at the Los Angeles Festival of Books for oh. a nonfiction paranormal book. I was thrilled. Congratulations, <laughs> I yeah. That, I think that says a lot about the paranormal field and how there's still a lot of interest in it. it. It hasn't burst its bubble yet. I think there's still a lot of growth to be had in the field. And I think it's a great book for people who are first-timers and, and just getting into this because it gives you a lot of the theory that you'll be dealing with out in the field. But I think it's also great for people who have been doing it for a long time because it shows you how to strike a balance between the two different approaches, which I think a lot of people lose sight of. And a lot of people kind of get locked into one way or the other and they don't find a way to kind of make it all work in harmony. So you've done a great job of finding a good balance there and, and hopefully that will enlighten some people who pick up the book and read it. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. That's very sweet. Oh, no, no problem. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, again, com is the website. IntoTheLightParanormal.com is the other website. And, Kitty, hopefully we can have you come back on the show sometime again and, and talk a little bit more in depth with us. Oh, I would love to. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, and you have a great night. Oh, thank you very much. You guys have a good night, too. Stay spooktacular, as we say here. <laughs> oh, okay. And, uh, and absolutely, definitely check out that book. Again, it's called When the Dead Speak, The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation. And as she mentioned, you can get it on Amazon or wherever uh, books are found. But uh, we are now going to be joined uh, by our friend Aaron Kaju. And I'm just going to tell him what number to call in. Uh, this news is something that has been years in the making, I think. Years. And they announced it today. And... I have to say that uh, it struck me by surprise because I didn't realize they were getting close to the announcement. But it is something that is near and dear to a lot of the people around this area. A lot of people have personal connections with this story. And a lot of people have just memories, some of them very, very horrible, of this time. So uh, we are going to bring in Aaron Cadge. Now you know him as the co-director of the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, but he's joining us to talk about the new project. And, Aaron, I'm glad that we can finally talk about this publicly and we can let people know what it is uh, that you have planned because I think it's going to be pretty earth-shattering for a lot of folks on the South Coast. Well, Tim, thanks for having me on tonight, and I guess it's appropriate that uh, your show would be the first audio uh, mention of this. <laughs> the world so i appreciate it and uh it's appropriate because you've been so supportive of what we're trying to do um up until you know today that we're finally able to announce it publicly but you've been supportive of us right through uh the entire last year and a half that we've been researching and working on this so um uh bristol county media which is um my production company is excited to announce that we are producing what will be the first ever documentary film about the infamous New Bedford Highway murders of 1988. And this is going to be, I think for a lot of people around here, it's going to be a sharp reminder of just exactly what went on during that time. Because we, a lot of, you know, we look back on it, we remember seeing the news reports, remember hearing about it, maybe we read the book. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't understand just the, the entire scope of what this is. And it's kind of swept under the rug. It's something that we don't want to talk about. But this is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in American crime history. This is the, uh, the um, biggest unsolved serial murder case in the history of New England. Uh, you know, the Boston Strangler um, t uh, had more victims than the New Bedford Highway Killer. But, uh, you know, the Boston Strangler was allegedly brought to justice, um, but the New Bedford Highway murderer was never caught. And these tragic series of events cut short the lives of 11 women from the city of New Bedford, nine of which were found on the highways leading in and out of the city. And uh, it's called the New Bedford Highway murders, but ironically not one of the 11, uh, well, not one of the nine women that were discovered uh, were found actually in New Bedford. There were four in Dartmouth, three in Freetown, one in Westport, and one way out in Marion on 195. But they were mostly New Bedford residents, right, for the most part? Yeah, for the most part, they were New Bedford residents. Uh, some of the, uh, One of the victims that walked away from a, um, a work detail from uh, the Rhode Island uh, Corrections, uh, Department of Corrections, and she found her way to New Bedford. Um, some of the women were living sort of transient lifestyles, so it's not exactly known where they were living at the time, but most of them had ties to the, to the uh, drug scene in the city of New Bedford. 
And that was unfortunately the way that the national media took this story to be. You know, a lot of the, the, the national news that came in here and reported on this reported on it as being, you know, here are these these drug-addicted and, and prone-to-prostitution women who are coming in, uh, you know, coming into the city and are being murdered. And I, I think that it was kind of a, a stain on the reputation of these victims. And, and hopefully with your documentary, I, and I know this is what you're trying to do, I know this is part of it, you'll be able to restore some of the dignity to these victims. Absolutely. That, that's priority number one for us. We're working closely with a number of the family uh, family members of these victims who are, have been very, very supportive of what we're doing. And, um, you know, one of the things, that I think it was a big, I know you're limited on time, it was a big disservice, I think, to this case that it was so quickly pinned on the Weld Square area of New Bedford, which was the red light district back at that time, uh, where if you really look at the case and you look at the last known whereabouts of a lot of these women, not a single one of these women that they know the last known whereabouts of was in Weld Square. You know, some of these women may have, may have frequented Weld Square at one point or another, but the actual last known whereabouts of some of these women that they do have the last known whereabouts for, were in, none of them were in Weld Square, not a single one. Hmm. And if you are watching on Spooky TV right now, you're seeing the trailer for The Highway Murders uh, up on the screen. You can watch it on YouTube. You can go to BristolCountyMedia.com and check it out. And go to the Highway Murders, I'm sorry, HighwayMurders.com, www.HighwayMurders.com, and uh, and you can see the trailer. I, I don't know. I mean, I know things, Aaron, about this documentary uh, that you've been telling me over, the, over time here that uh, some of the stuff might not be... Uh, stuff that you're talking about publicly quite quite yet, but you're going to be sitting down and talking to the key people that were involved in this, both the victims' families and, and people who knew the victims, as well as people who were involved in law enforcement, and you've already been doing this, you've already been talking to these people. So the question that I'm going to ask you is, how much of this mystery that has been surrounding this all these years is due to the fact that just the people who were on the job, the people who were researching this and investigating it, just dropped the ball? Well, in their defense, I think that they were in a little over their heads. Um, you, you had different agencies involved from di- different jurisdictional things. I mean, when the, last, when the last victim was found, she was found on the line in Plymouth County. They involved a whole separate district attorney's office. You had local authorities, state authorities, the FBI, and the periphery profiling the killer. Uh, there was a lot of communication that was required through a lot of different law enforcement agencies, and of course there were communication breakdowns back at that time. But I think the local authorities were just in over their heads. Yes, New Bedford has a reputation for being a tough city. Yes, it has a lot of crime. But the city had never experienced anything like this before. You know, gang violence and drug violence is one thing, but a serial killer is a completely different animal. And uh, bottom line, I think they were just way in, in way, way over their heads. And, um, but yes, we, we've talked to a lot of people close to the investigation. We've talked to former investigators, former district attorneys. These people have already been interviewed. I mean, the, the teaser trailer that's out there right now, we've been sitting on that for months. And at that point, we had only shot a handful of interviews. Now we're up over 20 interviews, uh, victims' families. And, and like I said, an important part of this is these, these were women, these were human beings. These were women with, that were mothers, daughters, sisters, loved ones that people, you know, People cared about these women, and there's more to these women than just some of the problems that they might have had. It's just it's it's amazing to me that all these years later, you know, all that we've really had for coverage of this, besides you know the Standard Time stories that were out at the time and, and some of the local news coverage, uh, you know, one book comes out that has always been you know somewhat controversial in the way that it portrayed the people that are involved in this, and, and that's it. I mean, people have just swept a serial killer under the rug and forgotten about it and turned it into something that we just don't talk about anymore when it should be one of the biggest stories around this area and I'm glad that you're putting a spotlight on it and I'm glad that you'll be putting pressure on law enforcement and putting pressure on those who might know something to come forward and say anything. I know that you are already in the midst of doing all these interviews and you have more scheduled. Are you still looking for people that might have uh, interesting information to add? Absolutely. We have a call to action on our website under the contact us section on highwaymurders.com. Uh, we're looking for to speak to anybody that has relevant information regarding this case, and we get more specific on the website of, of who we're looking for. Um, primary, one of the groups that we're looking for is if you served on the special grand jury that was in panel to hear testimony in this case, we would love to hear from you. 
Uh, you are not under any legal obligations or gag orders to not say anything. You are free to say what you want. And this is 30 years later, almost 30 years later, so what could it hurt? Um, but it's, uh, in our opinion, this, this is a project that's long overdue. Yes, this was national news at the time. It's the biggest story to ever hit this region. But nowadays, a lot of people don't know much about it, if anything, and the things that they do know are, are sometimes wrong information. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping to help set the record straight with some of this stuff with this project. All right, just uh, we have about 30 seconds. Do you have sure. an idea of when you might be releasing it? I knew, I know you still we're have not, a lot of work to do. We're not going to hold to a, a hard date yet. Um, we'll just say coming soon at this point. Works for me. I cannot wait, uh, and I cannot wait to see exactly how you put this all together. The Bridgewater Triangle documentary was fantastic. This is going to be even better, so stay tuned for the highway murders coming up soon. Aaron, thank you for joining us and for sharing the information with our audience, and hopefully some listeners can reach out to you and provide some more information. Well, th thanks so much for having me, and have a good night, guys. You as well. Take care. That is uh, Aaron Kaju. Uh, he is the director of the new forthcoming documentary, The Highway Murders, and also the co-director of the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. Just go to highwaymurders.com if you have something that you would like to contribute and if you have some information uh, that could help out, especially, again, if you were one of those grand jury members, as Aaron said, you're not under any legal uh, gag order. There's no reason why you can't come forward and share you know, what was going on during that time, and it would be hugely helpful for the documentary. Well, that about does it for this week's show, and that's going to be it for the next couple of weeks because I'm going on uh, the Strange Escapes cruise with Amy Bruni and Chip Coffee and Grant Wilson and John Tenney and all those folks. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, everybody stay spooktacular.